So we're continuing on the, on the next panel discussion uh, that was labeled by uh, Gracious Dawn, the state of state practice on aggression, although we will be addressing the state of state practice on criminalizing aggression <laughs> instead. Although I think the, the practice of aggression is not so far removed uh, from our minds and shouldn't be, and I think we can see many instances of the legal use of force already in current developments, and many of which actually have been brought to the attention of the ICC, and they are, some of them, as uh, remain as preliminary analysis of the prosecutor. So it's, it's very good to go back in history, but it's also very good to, to look in front of us of what's, what's happening. Um, before presenting uh, the panelists, I just want to, to briefly mention uh, my role here. Uh, my name is Deborah Ruiz. I represent Parliamentarians for Global Action. We are an NGO uh, promoting the ratification of the Rome Statute since the entry into force of it. And it's an honor to have been invited to join the initiative of the Global Institute and a network of academics. And also at the individual level, at a personal level, it's very exciting to be living and, and, and be part of this movement because as a, as a student, when you read about this anti-slavery movement or when you read about the many attempts to criminalize or prevent the use of force and you, you read about this contribution, it's, it's very exciting to wonder what would, you have, what would have been my role if I would have been alive then? What would I have done for the anti-slavery movement? And I think having uh, Benjamin Ferenc among us and George Cowell and um, all these brilliant minds, uh, it's, it's very exciting to be part of this thinking and I think our panel is also very much down to what can be done and what as individuals we can do in a very concrete way and how these things that we talk about it at the macro level at this far away court in The Hague actually are very close to our homes and to, our, to, to the legislation that actually touches upon our behavior as individuals. Um, so for this, I will introduce you to Astrid reisinger Coraccini first to speak. She's a lecturer at the University of Graz, and she is the executive director of the Salzburg Law School, um, directed by Professor Otto Trifter. And under the um, funding of the Planethood Foundation, which is the foundation of uh, the Ferenc family, she made a very comprehensive study on the domestic implementation of the crime of aggression. It's the most definitive study on it. It has been published as part of the Torino conference proceedings, and she will be talking about that as part of uh, the, 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 the results of domestic implementation. Thank you, Deborah. Um, in my presentation, I would like to tackle two issues. Uh, first of all, I will give you uh, an overview over the current state of uh, domestic um, provisions on the crime of aggression. And in a second step, I would also like to go a little bit further and think of what uh, the fact that we now have a definition of the crime of aggression on the international level for the ICC, what impact that may have on domestic um, provisions. But I will be very quick in my second analysis to um, put this question also to uh, discussion. So what is the current state on provisions of the crime of aggression? I had a look into around 90 national criminal codes and acts and I found provisions on the crime of aggression in around 25 countries. These countries are mainly countries in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. All the provisions that I found predate the Kampala Compromise and they also, at least the majority of them, predate the negotiations of the Rome Statute. So this also reminds us um, that 
there is a crime of aggression under customary international law, and there are some states that implemented this customary uh, crime even before the process um, of the Rome Statute. And uh, the states that I'm mentioning, they explicitly did so. They wanted to implement the customary crime of aggression um, to defend the international values of the international community uh, as a whole. And for this reason, I excluded in my analysis some states, uh, for instance, Germany, Paraguay, and also Japan, who have similar provisions that are criminalizing the preparation of a war of aggression, but not to defend values of the international uh, community, but rather to defend national values, the integrity of the state or foreign diplomacy, as for instance in the um, case of Japan. The provisions that are found uh, can be traced back to two main sources. On the one hand side, it's uh, the definition of crimes against peace in the Nuremberg uh, Charter, and I'm usually referring to the Nuremberg Charter, but also include uh, the Tokyo Charter, which was uh, identical. Um, the second source, and this might be a little bit more surprising, uh, is the International Covenant uh, for Civil and Political Rights, because a number of states, um, as part of implementing the crime of aggression, also um, criminalize a propaganda of war, instigating uh, a war of aggression, which uh, is uh, criminalized by the International Covenant. Um, let me now go through the elements of the crime of aggression as it has been um, adopted in Kampala and see how the national uh, definitions um, um, deal with those elements uh, and in, how we, uh, in what way uh, they are comparable. What is uh, striking, uh, having a look at the national um, provisions, is uh, the lack of reference to a leadership clause. The leadership clause, um, it has been, in, uh, been defined uh, in Kampala, and actually this was a compromise that was um, agreed upon at a very early stage, or in 2002, um, in terms of the formulation that only persons uh, who have the capacity to influence the military or political action of a state should be held criminally responsible for the crime of aggression. Um, you cannot find uh, this clause in any of the national provisions. Um, which is not surprising because um, there was also no comparable provision in the Nuremberg Charter, for instance. Despite this lack of um, wording, it is generally agreed, and I think this was really a compromise uh, established at a very early stage, um, that only certain persons can commit the crime of aggression. And if you have a look at the commentary literature um, of uh, national provisions, you find some indications that on the one hand side, um, this blanket can be interpreted in, um, in accordance with international law and given, given the fact that the leadership clause has been included in the definition of the crime of aggression for the ICC statute, which on the other hand is meant to codify customary international law, it's a very strong um, hint uh, that this element is part of the customary law definition. Uh, the other argument that is uh, made in uh, the commentary literature is that the very fact of 
ordering a war of aggression or the capability of persons within a state system to wage such a war is already limited to certain functions. So that already excludes uh, certain persons, in particular the soldiers in the field, from criminal responsibility. So although literally we have um, a diversion between uh, national provisions and uh, the definition in Kampala in terms of interpretation and in terms of intention, I think there's no uh, huge discrepancy in, in, in this regard. Um, what regards the individual conduct, um, the participation of the individual in a state act of aggression, this is the very structure that was agreed in Kampala and uh, that is also a structure that is um, inherent in the Nuremberg definition, um, by what act can a person participate and be criminalized for an act of aggression by a state? Um, the Nuremberg formula is the planning, preparation, initiation, or waging of a war of aggression, those four uh, types of participation. Um, the Kampala um, definition takes uh, this uh, wording. There's only a slight uh, discrepancy with regard to waging, which is now um, phrased as uh, executing, but I don't think that there's any um, change in the meaning of the wording. So um, since the Kampala definition is very close to the Nuremberg definition in that regard, um, you have a very large overlap with uh, national uh, definitions. But not all states really follow the Nuremberg precedent in this regard. Some are under-inclusive, uh, uh, that means not all of the acts that were criminalized in Nuremberg uh, can be found in national uh, statutes, and what is striking is in particular that when something was left out, it's usually the waging of war. So you usually find um, preparatory acts, um, conspiracy acts uh, that are criminalized, but the actual waging of the war sometimes is left out. On the other side, uh, there are states that go further than the Nuremberg or the Kampala um, definition, and uh, this is what I referred uh, to uh, before. Um, very often goes into the direction of inquiet crimes, of instigation uh, of a war of aggression, or with regard uh, to propaganda of a war of aggression stemming from a different uh, source from the international covenant of uh, political and uh, civil rights. So there's quite a variety um, uh, in uh, state practice with regards to the uh, individual conduct. The Act of aggression by a state, which is the prerequisite for individual criminal responsibility, um, is now defined. This is uh, one of the major breakthroughs, uh, I think, uh, of the Kampala Compromise, that you don't only find a formula um, of how the individual can participate and be criminalized by participating in an, a state act of aggression, but it actually defines the um, state act of aggression. And this was something that was not done uh, at the time uh, of Nuremberg. We just had the phrase planning and so on of a war of aggression, and well, it wasn't really clear what a war of aggression was, despite the fact that everybody thought that whatever the Germans did was a war of aggression. Um, so the notion as such was not really defined. And uh, this was also the big discussion in the negotiations uh, on the international level and the International Law Commission. Um, can resolution 3314 be taken as a basis to define uh, the act of aggression? Um, since most um, national provisions follow the Nuremberg example, you also don't find a definition of uh, the state act as such. There's also different terminology being used. Sometimes it's a war of aggression as in Nuremberg, sometimes it's just a war, sometimes it's an armed attack. There's a number of um, uh, terminology uh, that is used. Um, there's 
um, only one uh, state, and this is Croatia, which has in, uh, a very young uh, provision on the crime of aggression and a very innovative. Um, it was uh, done during the course of the negotiations leading up um, to Kampala, and it actually takes the result of Kampala that came later on um, already into the uh, National Criminal Code, and they're defining aggression in terms of uh, um, General Assembly Resol Resolutions 3314, and even goes beyond it. They see it as a non-exhaustive list, and they also allow other acts uh, to be the basis uh, for a state act of aggression that might then be um, uh, the basis for the criminalization of individuals. There's a slight uh, hint in some of the commentary literature, even uh, where the term war of aggression, for instance, is, is used, because um, you might be aware that there was some discussion whether a war of aggression and an act of aggression um, covers the same acts, or would a war of aggression be a notion that is more narrow than an act of aggression? And for instance, uh, Polish um, uh, commentary literature is very clear um, on uh, the fact that the term war of aggression was taken because it was the historic notion that was used in Nuremberg. But it does not mean that international uh, law stops there and the national code uh, would actually be open to a current international law interpretation uh, that would explain a war of aggression also in the terms of Resolution uh, 3314. And interestingly, not only Resolution 3314 is mentioned, but also the 1933 London Convention uh, on the definition uh, of aggression which is not so much different of uh, what was uh, later on decided in 1974. Um, one aspect that um, can be traced back in uh, some uh, national criminal codes, uh, for instance in the Estonish, uh, Estonian criminal code, um, that was never really discussed uh, in the process of uh, defining aggression uh, for the ICC statute is a war in violation of international agreements. This is uh, one act of state that was uh, also criminalized uh, in, at, in the Nuremberg Charter. It was not really used by the Nuremberg Tribunal because it was already clear that a war of aggression uh, has taken place and the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal did not really go into, um, um, into that um, issue. Um, but there are some states that have taken it up. Um, I've uh, mentioned uh, Estonia, but also the Bolivian Criminal Code, for instance, um, punishes the violation of certain uh, treaties, in particular peace treaties. Um, so if uh, I may give you a very quick uh, summary, is uh, from those um, criminal codes that are uh, um, had a look at, of course the majority does not have a provision on the crime of aggression, but quite a number of states uh, do have them. Um, with regard to the leadership uh, crime, it's not so evident in the wording of the de definitions on the national level, but can be uh, applied in terms of interpretation. With regard to the individual con uh, conduct, we have uh, some states that uh, do not reach uh, the level that we have now after the, uh, with the Kambala definition. Some go even beyond. Um, and uh, with regard to the act of state, we are also mainly lacking uh, uh, definition on the national level, but in terms of in interpreting uh, the provision um, against the background of international law, we can arrive at a very similar result um, uh, that was achieved in Kampala. And I'm emphasizing this uh, because uh, the question may arise whether those states that already have a definition of aggression um, are now um, 
covered or have enough um, uh, uh, enough provisions on the national level um, to um, satisfy the complementary regime of the Rome Statute, because. Um, also the crime of aggression, once it is um, activated um, uh, by a decision by the Assembly of States parties, falls under the complementarity regime, and the ICC will only be able uh, to exercise jurisdiction when a state is unable or unwilling. And of course there's no um, obligation from the Rome Statute to implement the crimes of the Rome Statute. We have seen quite some state practice with regard to the other crimes. Um, out of the threat that the state does not want to be declared unable or unwilling by, um, by the ICC. And I don't see that uh, there would be a different situation with regards to the crime of aggression. So maybe only a very quick thought of what we can expect now after Kampala. Um, my personal hope is not only that we will have um, a number of ratifications, and some are um, obviously already coming up uh, this year, but that states also go further and implement uh, the crime of aggression uh, into their domestic uh, legal systems. Um, certainly the definition that was adopted in Kampala will serve um, as um, a guideline for what uh, states will implement, but states have a certain discretion to go beyond or to, to not fully reach uh, this level. And I personally would be interested <laughs> to see um, state practice evolving, in particular those states that were not maybe completely satisfied with, uh, we were talking about threshold clause, for instance. For some states, it is more political compromise, but not really the essence of the customer uh, crime of aggression. So I would be interested that those states also go as far and would implement uh, the crime of aggression on the customer law as they see it, and maybe give uh, some interesting hints with regards to the uh, current state of customary law with regard to the crime of aggression. Thank you so much, Astrid. And you hit on the on the on the spot of the what was called by Stefan Barriga the smooth embedding of the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute, which means that unless uh, it falls under the seven amendments that the Kampala decision did, which are mainly the definition and then two amendments for the triggering. Uh, mechanism and then some adjustments to ad adapt the, the wording and consider the new Article 8Bs, the elements of the crime and the adoption of the understandings, all the other provisions of the Rome Statute continue to apply. And this refutes most of the underlying questions, actually one of the questions even posed to, to Noah about this relationship between state responsibility and individual responsibility is the claim of this uniqueness of the crime of aggression. Why should we treat the crime of aggression different? And if we depart from the premise that it is a crime as the others committed by an individual decision, then the methods to prevent it should be the same methods. And one of the very important methods for this is through domestic exercise of jurisdiction, which under the principle of complementarity is mandated to states' parties um, as, 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 a, as a method of cooperation with the, with the ICC. Um, and in this respect, I, I, will, I will turn then into, into Robbie to introduce the trends and the, what we will hope the, the Kampala definition will bring into an, what should be the, the complementary side to the efforts for ratification at the level of, of domestic implementation. Robin Manson is the founder and director of the Institute for Law and Accountability and Peace. He's also part of the UK coalition for the ICC, and he was a very active participant with very important contributions um, from the expert side to the special working group on the crime of aggression discussions. Muchas gracias. Thank Great. you. Um, yes, yes.
Am I able to be heard at the back all right, or do I need electronic assistance? Uh, Robbie, it's my decision that you... Your decision, right. Okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, talk with the, with the advantage of the electronic device. Nothing, I think you're holding off. Or the, uh, the disadvantage, I have to say, of uh, my watch. So I'm entirely reliant upon the good offices of the moderator to remind me if I do go over as well, since she's nicked my watch. Um, <laughs> that said, uh, can I begin, of course, by thanking very much uh, my kind host, Professor Don Ferenz II, or Junior, or however he likes to be referred to, who is the founder of this new and um, uh, much, much needed uh, NGO civil society contribution, the Global Institute for the Prevention of Aggression. I don't know, actually, thinking about it now, if we are going to have some kind of statement or letter at the end of this conference that we can all sign up to, but I think for myself it's very important that I begin by saying that uh, uh, I'm very, very pleased that um, this new initiative in terms of a NGO dedicated to this particular aspect of the, um, of the uh, jurisdiction of the court and the crime of aggression is coming here, and I certainly dedicate myself in future to cooperating and participating fully as I am able to and invited to in the work of the Global Institute. I think I'm all right in saying that um, the more the merrier, as it were, we need to make this an important working global institute. I, I think the convention is, I could be wrong about this, but if Americans call something global, it means non-Americans are welcome to join in as well. <laughs> I think they use the word world if they, if they expected it only to be an American. <laughs> we, so, we were considering the lack Galactic, yeah. <laughs> so, if anybody knows any Martians that want to give us the benefit of their view on aggressions, please let us know. I, as uh, Deborah said, was at uh, Kampala, mainly to be honest, in my capacity for the, uh, the inland group. Uh, but I was happy to note that a large body of representation was sent to Kampala by the United Kingdom Coalition for the ICC, the large body being me. You're looking at it. <laughs> um, I have been uh, with assistance to the Assembly of States parties on about half a dozen or more occasions and one of the things that I find most regretful is while there have been one or two uh, Brits uh, who've gone along in capacity from international NGOs and so forth, the ability that I have um, failed to achieve to highlight this issue amongst the NGO community and amongst civil society in the UK is one of the greatest disappointments. That said, in my own wee little way, uh, I was able to achieve some influence, I think, if I can just say for a moment at Kampala. It was very interesting that we heard a little while ago from Professor uh, Shailas about what he learned from the French delegate on his way back to uh, Entebbe Airport, that uh, the principal reason why when the moment of truth, I believe you could call it, came at the end of Kampala, about 20 minutes past midnight on the final Saturday, that the French delegate didn't put his flag up to say, c'est un problème avec le consensus, was because he didn't want to be seen to act alone. Uh, interestingly, I have good reason to believe that's precisely the same reason why the British delegation didn't put their flag up and say we didn't act alone. So, um, as ever, it could well be that the reason we are where we are today is because England and France, or UK rather than France, haven't communicated as well as they should. But much more important, really, is when I came back from Kampala and uh, I wanted to see what the, um, what the reaction was going to be in the Foreign Office and beyond them in, uh, in the Parliament in Westminster to carry this process forward. 
As you've heard, one of the clauses that was set in stone, as it were, in the Kampala Agreement was that there would be no activation of the exercise of jurisdiction by the court before the start of the year 2017. But it's very important to realise that that is a very narrow technical issue that will go purely to matters pertaining to the exercise of jurisdiction by the ICC. It does not even have any uh, uh, legal bearing on the question as to whether a state who decides to ratify the Kampala agreement before 2017 would be bound by that um, agreement because that's a matter of the entry into force with respect to that state party. And much more importantly in my own book still, it certainly has no legal or constitutional influence and should not be seen as having effect as uh, Deborah has indicated on the equally important issue of implementing that agreement uh, and incorporating it into our national domestic jurisdiction. As Astrid has said in, in her uh, incredible and my, my very, very helpful world reprise of states who have acted to incorporate the crime before we ever got to Kampala, one thing that I think is legitimate is that one can see that before Kampala there was a great deal of force in the argument that states proceeding with ad hoc state-by-state -state implementation ended up with a little bit of a, a mishmash of uh, different state definitions and therefore the arguments that had been put forward by civil servants and by um, ministers of state that we're not ready to proceed along further adding to that mishmash, we want to have a common agreement before we act, had some strong legitimacy and some force. But that is why the most important aspect in my view of what was agreed by consensus at Kampala for whatever reasons is nothing to do really with this whole business about the conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction, the circumstances under which it will enter into force, etc., etc. What really matters, and I think Judge Klaus uh, uh, gave us that benefit, is that we now have an agreed international definition of what, for a legally enforceable purpose, this thing now is. It seems fairly extraordinary to many of us who took time to read the, the, the Nuremberg proceedings that that wasn't the case before. But when I came back from Kampala, I, I had a bit of an epiphany moment myself in realizing that, and, and this is where I think I'll end it on, um, whilst in the international sphere, of course, we are all United Kingdom citizens, we are represented by those appointed by the Crown, uh, who negotiates on our behalf on the international level and who is exclusively responsible, the Crown being the executive government of the country, for both negotiating and ratifying uh, international treaties, uh, seeing as such treaties and subsequently ratifying them. Um, when we come back to talk about incorporating uh, a criminal provision which the Crown has indicated it concedes to in terms of the definition, we actually live in a federal kind of state. Not a lot of people realize that. I think because um, it's some of a surprise to, to me. But the answer is that of course we live in an in a, in a international state which has two national jurisdictions when it comes to criminal law. It's a bit hard sometimes to name them, but I'm gonna suggest two names that are fairly straightforward by way of introducing uh, sorry, moving on to my next speaker, and that is to say, in the United Kingdom, when it comes to the criminal jurisdiction, there is a Scottish jurisdiction and there is a non-Scottish jurisdiction. <laughs> and the news that I got back from the non-Scottish jurisdiction 
when I wrote to them and asked if we could maybe have a meeting to talk about what happened in Kampala and how they proposed to carry it forward. Talk about, to be honest with you, three or four months to eventually get a common position that they were nailing themselves to. And it's not too surprisingly, that position has now been reiterated verbatim from many other quarters around the world, and it amounts to this. Because of the provision on 2017 being a, uh, a clock start for exercise of jurisdiction and activation, the United Kingdom, by way of the non-Scottish jurisdiction, is not minded to even consider further, in any way whatsoever, whether or not ratification of this amendment is advisable or required until after that date. Equally, and this is much more serious, they go on to say simply this, that because they are not going to consider whether or not it's in the political and diplomatic interests of the Crown to ratify this amendment before 2017, neither are they going to consider whether or not incorporating, implementing legislation to amend the existing ICC Act should be done before that date either. And, you know, I would like to say now, we are looking to educate parliamentarians, that's to say Westminster parliamentarians, within whose jurisdiction the issue of implementing legislation under the UK Constitution actually rests. It is not, whatever view you take about the UK Constitution, for them to determine ultimately whether this amendment be ratified. But whether or not there is a amendment to our existing legislation which keeps us up to date with the ICC is a matter from our, our parliamentarians. And we have support, particularly in the Liberal Democrat Party, but wider as well, and we will be holding a Westminster um, meeting. We hope sometime, we haven't got a narrow date yet, but we will certainly be holding it sometime in July, either in the immediate moment before we hear about what Sir John Chilcott has got to say on the question of how this country has, has behaved with regard to international law, or immediately after it. And I would certainly very much invite those of you in the room today to come and find out more details about that. And I hope that when the website is up, Don, it will be available beyond that. However, I have to say, it's not all bad news. Because whilst the forces that be in the non-Scottish part of our domestic jurisdiction are as predictable as ever, I'm very, very pleased to say that in the other place, things are looking a lot rosier. And I'm now going to hand over to my colleague to my right to describe to you in greater detail why that should be the case. I'll, I'll use this mic because occasionally when I'm speaking I move my hands and it has the effect of fading me in and out as I, as I speak. I'll keep it fairly brief and I'll, I'll take any questions afterwards. Don is staring at me hard you see because he told me this morning that I was speaking too quickly. This is nonsense. Don was listening too slowly. <laughs> <laughs> But I will try and speak more slowly and I invite the chair to give me a little gentle poke if I, if I suddenly accelerate. I've only got a few minutes, so if I accelerate I can be done in one minute and no one who's not Scottish and understands my accent will have a clue what I said. <laughs> On the 24th of September 2001, the International Criminal Court Scotland Bill received royal assent and became the International Criminal Court Scotland Act. The date is quite significant because Scotland then adopted the offences within the statute of the International Criminal Court nine months before the Rome Statute entered force on the 1st of July 2002. So the precedent that we can do something prior to being, if you like, internationally adopted has already been set. There was no dissent in this. 
No members of the Scottish Parliament, NSP, stood up and said, this is a bad idea. No member said, this is beyond the powers of the Scottish Parliament. Nobody said, I'm going to vote against this. Now, as I said this morning, I would like to say that that means that every politician and every political party in Scotland believes that invading somebody else's country, bombing the civilian population and destroying their cultural artefacts is a really bad idea, if not downright illegal. That, of course, would be an exaggeration, but we did agree to pass the Act. In, I got involved in January of 2010. In about 2009, a well-known Scottish political figure, Jim Sillers, sent a large dossier to the, the Lord Advocate and said, put Blair on trial. The Lord Advocate declined. I then wrote to the Lord Advocate on 2010. Given the findings of the Dutch Committee of Inquiry into the invasion of Iraq, that UN Resolution 1441 cannot reasonably be interpreted as authorising individual member states to use military force to compel Iraq to comply with Security Council's resolution, and that the rule of customary international law is a rule of Scots law, Lord Advocate's reference number 1 of 30 March 2001, it would seem that you have the power to investigate the conclusion of the Dutch Commission and, should you find the evidence against them compelling, prosecute the former UK Prime Minister. For some reason I did not receive a quick reply to that letter. So I sent them a reminder in February and received the following illuminating response. Crown Council have carefully considered this matter and have concluded that there is no legal basis for this to be done. This began a series of exchanges of letters between my office, uh, various law legal friends and the Procurator's office saying yes you can, no we can't, yes you can, no we can't. In the process of this exciting set of letters, um, I think it was Robbie said to me, well perhaps then what you could do at least is adopt the Kampala definition of the crime of aggression into the International Criminal Court of Scotland Act which struck me as a perfectly reasonable idea. After all, if we could adopt the original Act before it was officially adopted in 2002, then surely there can't be a problem with adopting the definition into the Scotland Criminal Act. Seems perfectly reasonable. So I wrote to the Cabinet Secretary for Justice, Kenny McCaskill, requesting that the Scottish Government move to adopt the definition of the crime of aggression into the Scotland Act. The initial reply, the initial reply I have to say, wasn't positive indicating that the Scottish Government might wait until the seven-year review period was up. Now, the, the wording was interesting because it sounds a bit like um, the wording perhaps received from some other states, and it's worthwhile remembering that the civil service in Scotland is presently part of the British civil service. Certain parties, like mine, would like to change that, but nonetheless presently is part of the British civil service, which may explain the peculiarly similar wording to some of the comments in the UK. However, the Scottish National Party has a strong tradition of opposing armed intervention. It opposed the Bosnia bombings, it opposed um, intervention in Iraq. So there is a sympathy within the political party and the leadership. I mean, if you remember, um, Clyde Comrie and Alex Salmond tried to have Blair indicted during the Iraq war. So I thought there was an opening there. And at this point, uh, Don, Robbie and I organised a small convention in, in the Scottish Parliament to highlight the importance of adopting this definition into the Act. We invited MSPs of all parties and Robbie wrote a, a wide range of letters to Liberal MSPs to try and convince them to attend. Um, I'm sure Robbie would be happy later to describe the pointless exchange <laughs> which got us nowhere and eventually only Green and SNP MSPs attended. I don't know if it's coincidence that the only political parties that attended are political parties that believe in independence for Scotland but nonetheless only SNP and Green attended the event. At the end of this meeting we circulated an open letter I'm still speaking, okay, yeah.
bit too quick, okay? And invited those in attendance to sign it. The letter was distributed to the press and sent to the Cabinet Secretary. The following response was received. The resolution on aggression called for the issue to be reviewed after a further period of seven years, before Member States were required to implement into domestic law. We wish to reflect and carefully analyse the legal implications of any amendment before setting out any timetable for legislative change in this area. Any changes will not be possible prior to the May 2011 election. At this time, we were about three months in the election. But the tone of the letter had notably changed and seemed to be slightly more positive, or I thought quite a bit more positive than the initial letter we received. It take too long to read out both letters, so I'm keeping it short. Following receipt of the second letter, the National Secretary of the Scottish National Party and myself decided to lodge a motion at the party conference. Now this is the party conference which was launching our political campaign, so it was quite a significant conference, and the motions accepted don't tend to be motions which are, let's say, running against the present mood of, of leadership of the party. You don't like to majorly upset the apple cart before an election, certainly not a month and a half before an election. So the fact the motion was accepted um, to go before conference was very positive. The motion was signed by the National Secretary, myself and three other MSPs, and importantly, the motion was passed without any dissent whatsoever, meaning that it is now the party policy of the Government of Scotland to adopt the, crime, the amendment to the crime of aggression into the Scotland Act, which means there should be no reason why within the next five years Scotland has not moved to adopt the amendment. Thank you very much. Um, there, are, there are other initiatives uh, being started in New Zealand. There has, there has been an initiative to control the decisions of the Prime Minister, to force uh, the Prime Minister to consult and obtain a legal advice whether the use of force that he's intending to authorize is in line and doesn't constitute a crime of aggression as defined um, at that time by the definition proposed by the Special Working Group, which is now the same definition adopted under Kampala. And it's inevitable that the efforts to, to implement what, what Judge Cowell has commended us to work on, which is to, to find the mechanisms so that leaders think about twice before making use of, of force, uh, requires the domestic implementation of the crime, the socialization of the, more, of the norm of exactly what constitutes the use of, of, legal, uh, the use of force within the terms of, of the UN Charter. Um, so this initiative is, is very important and, of course, any, any efforts to, to call upon your, your representatives to, to follow the same motion would be very important and that would be a very important effect of the Kampala Amendment in the meantime while it enters into force. Um, with this conclude the panel, but we're open uh, for questions to the, to the panelists.